Tell me, where have you studied in preparation for this examination? Did you attend law school in London? With asked. I did not go to law school. Might you have attended college up north at Harvard, perhaps? No, sir, no college. Uh, where have you apprenticed then? Uh, nowhere, formally, but I've spent a great deal of time conversing with attorneys who practice at Hanover Courthouse. Is this some kind of April Fool's joke? Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderofthe7.com. Today we're coming to you on location, live from Williamsburg in the Royal Governor's uh, barn. As you may recall last time, Miss P used the Iamosphere, apparently she had prearranged this with Gilliman, to transport us back to the 1760s to what she calls her annual uh, barnyard ball. And joining me, of course, as always, impeccably dressed, are your not always impeccably dressed hosts, Max. Huh, so good of you to join us. Uh, Liz. Bonjour, mon ami. Uh, charmed, I'm sure. And, of course, Nigel. Indeed, welcome to this most exclusive social event of the season. And, uh, what season would that be, Mosey? I mean, we got here by the Iamosphere. I'm not even sure what year it is. Well, one thing we do know for sure, today's podcast features Chapter 37 of The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, entitled, With a Wyth and a Prayer. Uh, did you mean a wish? No, a wyth. <laughs> I say, old chap, uh, having a bit of trouble speaking today, what? Aye, lad, cat got your tongue? <laughs> do not blame me. Uh, don't worry, this soon will make sense. Uh, but first, let me bring in our special hostess, with the mostess. The fair mare with the ebony hair. The horse of a different uh, century. The one and only Ms. P. Boy, you can lay it on thicker than cold gravy. And yet my words still fall far short of the accolades you so richly deserve. You keep that up and I'm going to have to get you a bigger shovel. Uh, this one's plenty big. And, and by the way, why am I carrying a shovel anyway? Uh, clean up and stable three. I'll handle it. Oh, wait. Bless your heart. Indeed, Miss P., we do appreciate your hospitality, and it was splendid of you to provide this stylish array of after-six attire for each of us. <laughs> Guilty as charged. Aye, and thanks for bringing along Al and me bunny Kate. Oh, she was so impressed with me fancy kilts then. It was my pleasure. Oh, it was so good to dance with my cher Albert, though he and Kate had to leave early. And uh, he, of course, very much enjoyed the delicious hors d'oeuvres. Yeah, he did. In fact, at one point, he, he asked me to bring him a whole tray of finger sandwiches. And I'm like, what am I, your waiter? <laughs> I say, that, uh, 
That, that is comical. <laughs> but uh, since you do look the part, old chap, uh, could I trouble you for a thimbleful of their finest chocolate milk? Uh, shaken, not stirred. Sure, double O Nigel. And while you're at it, could you be a dear and bring me a sweet tea and a couple of sugar cubes? Anything for you, Miss P. Sure, I'll be your, your personal waiter. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll be back in a moment. Take your time. The poor boy doesn't even realize he really is a waiter. Bless, Bless his, his heart. I lass. <laughs> you see, he don't get dressed up all that much. So, uh, so maybe we should have them out, no? Let us get back to our story. Today we find that Mon Henry... Patrick Henry has written Miss P. to Williamsburg for the first of his interviews to gain a license to practice law. Child, I remember that like it was yesterday. For all we know, with the Iemosphere, it might have been yesterday. <laughs> Indeed. Chapter 37. With a With and a Prayer. April 1st, 1760. Patrick slipped his three law books into his saddlebag draped over Ms. P.'s back and tightened the strap. That about does it, Ms. P. He smiled and patted her on the back. Not quite, Mr. Henry, Sally said from the doorway of their cabin behind Hanover Tavern. Patrick turned and saw her holding a fresh loaf of baked bread and cheese wrapped in a cloth in one hand and a few small apples in her right hand. Even lawyers have to stop and eat, as do their horses. Patrick kissed her on the cheek as he took the food in hand. I'm not a lawyer yet, Sally. She pressed her forehead against his and stared into his eyes. You soon will be. I'm praying for you, my love. I know you will go to Williamsburg as simple Pat Henry and return to Hanover as Patrick Henry Esquire. Patrick kissed her tenderly and nodded. Then if Mrs. Henry so declares it, so be it. They shared a chuckle. It will take me two days to travel the fifty miles to Williamsburg. I'll spend a day standing before the examiners, spend that night, and head for home the following day. Do you and the children have all you need while I am away? Patsy and John came out, and he knelt down to give them big hugs. Goodbye, my little ones. We'll be fine. Go, Mr. Henry, Sally insisted with a smile. You should stop in and see Mr. Jefferson while you are in Williamsburg. Patrick nodded. I will, Sally. He packed the food and climbed up into Ms. P's saddle. He blew a kiss to his small family. I'll see you in five days. Sally picked little John up and he waved his father off. Bye-bye. Nigel leaned over and patted Cato on the neck, where they sat on the branch of a nearby pine tree. He's off, old boy, to Williamsburg. As the eagle flies, Cato said, looping above Hanover Tavern. Cato's shadow passed over Patrick as he and Ms. P. galloped out of Hanover. Oh, Ms. P., you look a bit like Bill with all this brown mud on you, Patrick said, brushing off the horses' legs on their last stop before reaching Williamsburg. They had camped overnight in the woods, traveled through swollen creeks and ruddy roads, and were both splattered with mud. Patrick looked down at his coarse brown breeches and coat and laughed at himself. <laughs> I look a bit like Bill, too. He brushed off the mud from his clothes the best he could 
and climbed back into the saddle. All right, let's get into town, but we'll take it nice and slow once we reach the city limits. I don't want to get fined. You're driving, Patrick, Miss P. whinnied. Soon Patrick saw the cupola of the three-story building of the College of William and Mary, and a surge of excitement ran through him. Never before had he been to a large city, and he couldn't wait to see the beautiful streets of Virginia's capital. As they entered the city from the west, they passed the college and saw some of the eighty enrolled students walking about the campus. Patrick wondered if he would see young Tom Jefferson, but decided he would wait to find him until after his examination. Tonight, he would clean up, study, and rest to be ready for tomorrow. Passing the college, Patrick smiled to see the broad, one-mile-long Duke of Gloucester Street spread out before them. Horses and carriages kicked up dust down the busy street, and pedestrians darted in and out of the flow of traffic to cross to the other side. Patrick now understood why limits were placed on the speed of horses, so as not to plow through so many people. At the other end of the sandy street was the elegant brick H-shaped Capitol building, and all along the thoroughfare were tidy homes spaced apart on half-acre lots. Gardens with emerging spring flowers, shrubs, and orchards separated the houses, not only making the city beautiful, but also serving as protection against fire. Midway down the street was the Bruton Parish Church on his left, and the Palace Green, where a few sheep grazed and people met one another in the beautiful stretch of grass leading to the Governor's Palace. Located on the eastern side of Palace Green was a theater to entertain the crowds during public times, when the courts were in session and the city swelled to capacity. No doubt the play Cato had been performed here many times. On Patrick's right began the Market District, with shops, inns, coffee houses, and taverns. The magazine sat in the heart of the area and housed the armory of weapons and gunpowder needed to protect the town. Across the street was the courthouse and the public stocks, where lawbreakers were humiliated and punished for their crimes for all Williamsburg to see. But all was quiet at the moment. Although Williamsburg's approximately 1,000 residents milled about in what felt to them like an abandoned town, to Patrick, the city bustled like the busiest of court days back home in Hanover. Patrick smiled when he saw the sign hanging over the print and bookshop of the Virginia Gazette. Sally's grandfather, William Parks, had founded this weekly paper, which served as the colony's news source and was the ninth paper established in America after those in Boston, Newport, New York, Philadelphia, Annapolis, and Charleston. It served the Virginia General Assembly, printing summaries of important acts, announcements, and proclamations from the royal governor. Although the Virginia Gazette carried local news, it was also the source all Virginians read for news from London and elsewhere abroad. He was pleased to see the place where the papers were printed and then sent all the way to Hanover to be read around the tables of Hanover Tavern. Various inns and taverns gave Patrick options for staying overnight here in Williamsburg, Weatherburns, the King's Arms, and Market Square, to name a few. But the most acclaimed of all was the white, wooden, and black-shuttered Raleigh Tavern, located near the capital. A bust of Sir Walter Raleigh above the entrance greeted guests and reminded them of how Virginia was named by the dashing Raleigh in honor of the Virgin Queen Elizabeth I. The Raleigh was the social epicenter of Williamsburg, 
where the wealthiest and most fashionable of gentlemen gathered. Downstairs was the lively tap room for gathering and games, billiard room, and the elegant Apollo room, with its long dance hall and grand fireplace. Above the fireplace in gilt letters was inscribed, Hilaritus Sapientiae et Bonae Vitae Proles, Jollity, the offspring of wisdom and good living. Upstairs travelers paid sixpence for usually cramped accommodations. Patrick knew he wouldn't fit in with the bewigged social elites, so after passing the Raleigh and viewing the majestic capital, he turned Ms. P. to circle back down Duke of Gloucester Street to take his lodging at the modest market tavern. Nigel and Cato kept a close eye on Patrick's movements, and once the young man had arranged for Ms. P. to be kept in the barn behind the tavern, Cato descended to drop Nigel off. The little mouse would be following Patrick's examination closely tomorrow in order to be able to report back to Liz everything that took place. "'Welcome to Williamsburg, my dear. How do you like it so far?' Nigel asked Ms. P. "'It's a far cry from Hanover, and from the likes of the fancy bigwigs I see strutting around town, it's a far cry from Patrick, too,' Ms. P. replied. "'If he tries to present himself looking like he's been sleeping in a pig pen with those muddy clothes, I doubt he'll impress those lawyers.' "'Oh, dear,' Nigel worried. "'He's never been one to care about his appearance.' "'Ms. P. snorted and shook her head. "'Well, he best start caring tomorrow "'if he wants to be taken seriously as an aspiring lawyer.' "'The incessant sound of the ticking clock "'in the study of George Wythe only added to Patrick's nerves. "'He had not slept much the night before.' cramming in as much reading by dim candlelight as he could before attempting to sleep in the same room as another boarder who snored loud enough to shake the walls of the tavern. Patrick rose early to walk across the street along Palace Green to a handsome two-story brick home located just north of Bruton Parish Church. Patrick Henry took a deep breath as he looked up at the imposing house with its two chimneys. He then walked up the central brick steps and used the brass door knocker. A servant soon opened the door. He introduced himself, handing over his certificate of recommendation. The servant invited Patrick in and led him to wait in Mr. Wythe's study. Meanwhile, Nigel slipped in the open door unnoticed. Patrick looked around the small study at the many scientific tools and law books that filled the desk, table, and shelves. He imagined Patsy and John trying to pick up everything they saw in this room but absent were children who could wreak havoc there. While George Wythe was only ten years older than Patrick, he and his wife had no children, having lost their only child in infancy. Wythe threw himself into law, learning, and serving in the house of Burgesses. Nigel gave Patrick a good looking over and saw that his coarse clothes were wrinkled with some mud still evident on the back of his coat. His shoes were covered in a film of mud. His wig was unkempt, and his tricorn hat well-worn. He had attempted to clean himself off, but Ms. P. was right. Patrick would have a hard time making a good first impression with the well-groomed men he would face today. Oh, dear. Soon, Patrick heard footsteps creaking down the large wooden stairs, followed by footsteps walking through the hardwood foyer. Patrick's heart started beating fast, and he wiped his sweaty palms on his breeches. He stood to his feet, 
and soon there appeared at the doorway a kind, short man with an unusually round head and smiling blue eyes. Mr. Wythe was dressed in a fine burgundy-colored silk coat and waistcoat, or vest, with gold buttons, black breeches, a crisp white ruffled shirt, and shiny black shoes with gold buckles. He was clean, fresh, and dressed to perfection. A stark contrast to the young applicant who waited in his study. "'Good morning, Mr. Henry,' Mr. Wythe greeted Patrick with the most gracious bow he had ever seen. "'I'm pleased to make your acquaintance. I've read your certificate of recommendation.' He returned the certificate back to Patrick and tried to stifle a frown at the sight of the unkempt backwoods young man who stood before him. "'Good day, Mr. Wythe. It, it, it is an honor, sir,' Patrick stuttered with a nervous bow. "'Mr. John Lewis sends his warmest regards, and he recommended that I seek an audience with you first for my examination.' "'Oh, yes, my brother-in-law John, a good man, and a fine lawyer,' Wythe commented, walking to his desk where he took his seat and motioned for Patrick to do the same in the chair opposite him. He fumbled with some papers in his desk and took out a parchment document, an unsigned formal law license. "'Here we are,' he said, holding up the unsigned document. "'I assume you know the procedure for securing a law license in the colony of Virginia. There is no written examination, only an oral interview.' to be given by myself and my three colleagues, but only two signatures are required for this license to be valid. I understand, sir, Patrick replied. Now then, tell me, where have you studied in preparation for this examination? Did you attend law school in London at the Inner Temple or Gray's Inn? Wythe asked, folding his hands on his desk with an expectant smile. Both the fine schools where Peyton and John Randolph attended. Patrick hesitated a moment before answering. He cleared his throat. <clears> throat> uh, "'Those are indeed fine schools, and I would have been quite fortunate to attend either one of them, but I did not go to law school.' "'I see. Well, I have not seen your name on the rolls of William and Mary, where I serve as a Burgess. Might you have attended college up north at Harvard, perhaps?' Wythe asked, hopefully. "'No, sir, no college,' Patrick answered. But my father, Judge John Henry in Hanover, was a graduate from King's College in Aberdeen, and saw to my education. Wythe tapped his finger subconsciously on the back of his hand. No law school, nor formal college training either. Uh, where have you apprenticed, then? Uh, nowhere, formally, but I've spent a great deal of time conversing with attorneys who practice at Hanover Courthouse, Patrick explained. A glimmer of hope appeared on Wythe's face. Ah, so you are industrious to seek out legal experts. Good, good. I assume you assist them with their paperwork and trials on court days. Well, I do attend trials when I can, but mainly I talk with them when they come over to Hanover Tavern, Patrick answered. Come over to Hanover Tavern? Wythe asked him. Nigel put his paw up to his mouth feeling the anxiety in the air. This will not go over well. Yes, sir. Where I live with my family and help my father-in-law, Mr. John Shelton, who owns the tavern, Patrick honestly explained. He was completely transparent about who he was. Wythe sat back in his chair and folded his arms across his chest, continuing to tap his finger. So you work there? You're a barkeep? 
I volunteer there, sir. I have a farm nearby, as well as a merchant store, Patrick explained. You see, my crops have failed to make ends meet, and my store will likely close soon as well, Patrick continued to explain honestly. Our house burned down, and my father-in-law took us in during this difficult time. So you thought you would just try being a lawyer, is that it? With asked sarcastically with an expression of disdain. Yes, sir. "'Patrick replied eagerly. "'I'm fascinated by the law.' "'With tapped his finger on his elbow "'and breathed in slowly through his nostrils, "'letting out his breath in the same manner. "'So you have no formal schooling, "'and you haven't apprenticed with a law practice. "'How exactly have you prepared for this examination today?' "'I've spent a winter reading Coke upon Littleton, "'Digest of the Virginia Acts,' "'and trials per pace.' "'The winter?' With asked, "'leaning forward over his desk "'and wearing a look of disbelief. "'Just three months?' "'Yes, sir,' Patrick answered. "'And you wish to take your examination now "'at the beginning of April?' "'With asked, "'setting the law license back over on the stack of papers. "'Is this some kind of April Fool's joke?' Nigel planted his face in his palm and shook his head. Uh, "'Not at all, sir,' Patrick answered back confidently. "'I understand you were also self-taught, isn't that correct? You read law under your uncle in Prince George County and passed the bar at the age of twenty? Nigel looked up, as did With. Patrick had certainly done his homework. "'Yes, I did,' With started to say. "'You evidently benefited from the counsel of your one uncle,' Patrick quickly inserted. "'I have received individual counsel from no fewer than thirty attorneys, justices, and sheriffs, "'which has allowed me exposure to a broad spectrum of various points of view on numerous matters of the law. "'I have received the benefit of their counsel and their valuable time, "'which they saw worthwhile to invest as I embark on this quest into your profession.' He leaned forward and smiled. You were given the opportunity to practice under the excellent seniority of the distinguished attorney Zachary Lewis as you embarked on your law career. Mr. Lewis trusted you not only with his law practice, but with his daughter. Might I say what a sentinel compliment that is to your unwavering integrity. I have heard the high regard that he and others have for you, especially from Mr. Lewis's son, your brother-in-law, John. I am humbled that John has trusted me enough to sign the certificate of recommendation that validates the benefit of taking up your valuable time as well. Nigel's jaw hung open. Patrick had spilled out his case to be heard by Mr. With, and by the looks of the distinguished attorney, he was now ready to look beyond Patrick's physical appearance and his lack of education and training. With sat there still, "'listening intently. "'Patrick pointed to Mr. Wythe's finger. "'It would appear you have decided to listen "'as you are no longer tapping your finger. "'I've noticed that jurors who are either disinterested "'or frustrated by the arguments of the attorneys in court "'tap their fingers incessantly. "'Those who especially wish to leave the courtroom "'tend to tap their fingernails on the wood railing "'to make their frustration better known. "'If they simply inspect their fingernails,' That indicates boredom or disinterest. Of course, they do not realize they are doing this at the time. 
The ticking clock was the only sound in the room as With sat there staring across the desk at this bold young man who had put him on the witness stand and cross-examined him about his career and current state of mind. Nigel looked from With to Patrick and back to With. Anticipation hung heavy in the air. Slowly, a grin grew onto With's face. "'You, Mr. Henry, have studied what transpires in the courtroom beyond the workings of the process of law,' With said. "'Now let us see what you have learned from your three books in your wintertime reading. I will pose hypothetical case scenarios, and you will give me the primary position you would take, first as prosecuting attorney for the plaintiff, and then as defense attorney for the accused.' With spent the next hour grilling Patrick on the formalities of courtroom law. Nigel squirmed as he watched Patrick make a feeble attempt at answering him. With had to repeatedly correct him and point out where his argument was weak. Finally, With put both hands on his desk and declared, Mr. Henry, you have spent three months reading three law books, and it shows. It would be futile and almost painful to examine you further on your knowledge of the law, for I know it will be woefully inadequate. Patrick didn't move a muscle, but kept his determined gaze on with. But I see potential in you, both in the art of persuasion, which you clearly have, and in your ability to analyze your subjects, with offered. If you apply that skill in the law books and... I mean more than Coke and two others. You just may have the aptitude to make it as a lawyer. Nigel stifled a hopeful cheer as he saw With reach over and pick up the law license once more. I'm going to sign this, albeit reluctantly, With said. I have the benefit of three others who shall determine if this paper has any value at the end of the day. Thank you, Mr. With. "'Thank you greatly for this opportunity,' Patrick exclaimed, as With dipped his quill in the ink, signed the form, and placed his seal into the glob of wax he poured next to his signature. With stood and handed the law license to Patrick with a smile. "'I wish you the best of luck, Mr. Henry.' He then walked him to the study door and pointed to his servant, who stood by the front door to see him out. "'Please give my best to Mr. Lewis.' Patrick took the license and bowed humbly. "'I shall, I shall. Thank you again, Mr. With. Good day, sir.' He walked briskly to the door, and Nigel scurried out the back door next to the study as another servant entered the house from the garden. Once outside on Palace Green, Patrick allowed his enthusiasm to bubble out as he muttered, "'Thank you, Lord!' and picked up his pace to walk down the street to the home of Robert Carter Nicholas." I only need one more signature. Nigel followed Patrick to his next stop at the beautiful white two-story home belonging to the conservative, esteemed lawyer and Burgess, Robert Carter Nicholas. He was the near neighbor of the royal governor. Bounding up the front steps with confidence, Patrick eagerly knocked on the door with a broad smile and proudly presented his certificate of recommendation and freshly inked law license to the servant to gain entry. But as he began his interview with the quiet 32-year-old man, he soon realized that Nicholas would not be moved as easily as with. Patrick's boldness actually served as a deterrent, 
And once the lawyer heard of the disheveled applicant's lack of schooling and brief preparation, he quickly dismissed him. Patrick's shoulders sank as he realized that his assumed ease of getting another signature was premature. Patrick walked to the head of Palace Green and stood in front of the elegant governor's palace. He looked up at the imposing iron gate that bore the royal crest of the King of England, while a stone lion and a stone unicorn each sat atop the two brick gate piers, proud symbols of the British Empire. The three-story brick palace was enclosed by a brick wall and flanked by two one-and-a-half-story wings and multiple outbuildings, including the stable, carriage house, kitchen, laundry, and scullery. A lush garden spread out behind the palace with ornately designed and trimmed hedges and topiary plants, thousands of flowers, and an intricate maze. Paths filled with crushed oyster shells wended through the angled walkways and under vine-covered arbors down to the canal, graced with blooming lily pads. Delicate weeping willow branches kissed the water as swans glided across the surface. More than twenty servants buzzed around the palace grounds and buildings to keep the governor's homestead operating in perfect harmony. Patrick had never seen anything like this. I can't imagine living in a place this grand. He thought back to the tiny cabin where his family lived behind the tavern. It wasn't even his. I don't need a palace. I just need a place that is my own, one that my family can call home. But I'll never have a home of my own if I don't succeed here in Williamsburg. God, help me, please. Patrick furrowed his brow straightened his hat, and turned to walk south along Palace Green to Nicholson Street. His naive enthusiasm now was turned to fierce determination. He would next go see Peyton Randolph, and, with God's help, he would gain his second signature and be done with this difficult business. Oh, I sure know that look of determination on Mon Henry. Indeed. Even with so much stacked against him, with his lack of education. Aye, and let's face it, all them past failures, too. They can mess with your head. But Patrick had enough sense to know that all those failures, well, they were just crossing off a whole bunch of bad choices. We oui, and his steely resolve was a sure sign that deep down, he truly knew that this was the direction they make ahead for him. I'm back. Ah. Oh, and here's the little sausage balls and uh, vegetable tray you guys requested. Well done, old boy. I say, you know, you could make a jolly good waiter, if that were something to which you were being called. Oh, thanks, Nigel, but I doubt that I'd be all that good at it for very long. And, you know, fortunately tonight, I am an invited guest who just happens to be dressed like a waiter. It's not like I am one. <laughs> Bless his heart. But we were just talking about Patrick Henry starting to find his true calling. Which begs the question, what if one is not sure where the maker is leading? Indeed. Sometimes the direction he leads us doesn't make much sense to us. You know what? I bet I know someone who can help us. Miss Jenny! But isn't she stuck somewhere in the 21st century? Well, never fear. I've studied the iamosphere circuitry that Gilliman helped to configure, and I believe I can patch us into the 21st century indeed. And so, uh, uh, just a minute. Uh, 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 here we go, here we go. Uh, I say, it's ringing.
Your Tesseract Bridge is engaged. Please stand by as we establish your time dilation connection in the quantum space continuum. Standard cross-multiverse rates may apply. Ah, oh, naturally. I they always get you some, though. Ah, okay. Uh, wait for it. Ah, here we go. Ah, I say, uh, uh, greetings, Miss Jenny. Hey, Nigel. Ah, Miss Jenny, we've been in discussion about understanding God's direction, as it appears that young Patrick has discovered his. Uh, but uh, what do we do when we don't understand God's direction, uh, or when he simply doesn't make sense to us? That is a great question, because that happens to all of us, doesn't it? God doesn't always tell us verbatim exactly what he's doing. In fact, I'd submit that he rarely does that. There was a book once that I loved called Just Enough Light for the Step That I'm On, and the premise of it was he gives us enough light right where we are to see around us. If there was too much light up ahead, we might race ahead of him and get ahead of his timetable, or we might even be afraid to see what's coming before we're ready and equipped to deal with it. So I have learned to trust when I don't understand because I understand and know the heart of God. And I know that he loves me. He wants what's best for me. And he wants to give me the desires of my heart as they align with his to just live out my purpose, to be his little scribe and write these books for kids and their families. So if I don't understand why something's happening, many times it's a good time to just stop what I'm doing, pray about it, read scripture, see if anything comes, do all I know to do, and if I keep getting blocked in one direction, I stop and I go work on something else, and then sometimes it becomes clear. I guess the best thing is trust the heart of God. He knows what he's doing. He's further down the line. He has full light on every step of the path all the way, and he knows what's coming down that path and who I need to meet and who I need to write for and exactly what they need me to pin. Ah, well said, madame. He sees the whole picture, but we do not. So we have to trust the maker, which is exactly the best position to be in, dependence on the one who loves us best. Uh, thank you, Miss Jenny. And, well, folks, we have an appointment with the future. So uh, everyone into the IMSphere. Uh, and merci to you, Miss P, for this uh, lovely soiree. It has surely been my pleasure. And y'all can keep your fancy duds, too. Huzzah! I, I mean, uh, I am uh, charmed by your generosity, my dear. Well, you're welcome, Nigel, but did you have to kiss my hoof? Yeah, that was special, Nigel. Ugh. And uh, as far as the clothes, thanks anyway, Miss P, but I think I'll give up my formal wear since everybody here seems to think I'm a waiter. Well, I hope you haven't felt diminished in any way, announced a fella. N no, not until just now. No, actually, quite the opposite. <laughs> With everybody thinking I was a waiter, I made about 20 shillings in tips. <laughs> ha! Good luck spending that in the 21st century. Okay, here we go. Grab on. We'll see you next time. Hang on! Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. 
All of the epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.